Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome to our show Dr. Roseanne Leipzig, who is a geriatrician with Mount Sinai Hospital, very prestigious hospital, of course, in New York City. She has been in the Department of Gerontology and is has been a gerontologist. I hope Mary Gerontrician, I'm sorry, I'm going to get that wrong, for some 40 years. She has a new book with the title Honest Aging. Honest Aging. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. A number of our audience members, our listeners, are, how to put this, um, of a certain age. I'm pretty sure of that. And aging is very much on the minds of a lot of us. I like to ask authors often about the titles, because I know a lot of authors, and I know how authors struggle with titles. I know it seems after the fact. Of course, the books have always been called this and that. Well, it's kind of like a kid. You name it, and after a while, the kid's name is just the kid's name. But it's a struggle, actually, often to get to the right title. And the title of your book is Honest Aging, as opposed to, I suppose, Dishonest Aging or uh, Compromised Aging or some other kind of aging. Why Honest Aging? Why did you choose that for the title of your book? Bill, I, it's a great question. Um, I use this title because when I look at other books on aging, usually what they're talking about is aging backwards or aging, um, becoming 10 years younger than you currently are, aging in reverse. And that's not true. There are changes that occur to all of us as we get older. It doesn't happen to everyone in the same way, and it doesn't happen to everyone in the same time. But everybody has changes as they get older. So I wanted to be clear that we were going to discuss the reality. What I call my, what I'd like to call my book, is what to expect as you're aging, kind of like the what to expect as you're expecting for pregnancy. Yeah, that'd be a little more boring. Uh, the subtitle of your book being an, an insider's guide to the second half of life, as if, well, you, you've, you've either been there and or have spent a lot of time with people who are there. I, I would like to ask you this because I was struck by uh, an aspect of your book that I hadn't really focused on, which is that we hear a lot about all of the problems with uh, uh, Medicare and Medicaid and people receiving services and the medical treatment they want. Your book makes the point that most people who are older actually are pretty healthy most of the time. Is that a fair impression? It's absolutely fair. Um, when you look at the numbers, um, the vast majority of people, number one, will live into old age, and number two, will be in pretty good shape. So like only about a quarter of people who are 85 and older are going to be frail or be living with dementia. The majority of people over 85, about 70%, say their health is excellent or good. And in medicine, we use that question a lot because we get true answers. If they say their health is terrible, it is. And if they say it's excellent or good, it is. Okay. So your subtitle to Honest Aging is An Insider's Guide to the Second Half of Life. I think we're all waiting with bated breath for the, this answer. What's the secret? 
How do you become, <laughs> how do you, how do you make yourself be in the 70%? I mean, assuming, leaving aside for a moment, you know, you, you're, you're, you, you come down uh, with a cancer diagnosis or there's a heart attack or something like that. But for the most part, what's the, what's the secret sauce to remaining a healthy uh, over 70, over 85 year old? There are a couple of pieces to the secret sauce. The first is having a positive attitude toward aging. There's good studies that show that people who have positive perceptions of aging live longer, about seven and a half years, do better, and are more likely to do new things and to thrive in old age. The second piece I would say is exercise, and that doesn't have to be, you know, doing a marathon. It can be walking every day, getting out, getting into the sun. And the third piece is socializing. The pandemic really taught us that, that being alone and being a couch potato is really bad for your health. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about socializing for a minute. What does that, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean groups? That means family? What does it mean? It means whatever works for you. You know, some people um, are isolated and they don't want to be around other people. Other people are lonely. They'd like to be with more people than they're with. Both groups will benefit from whatever works for them. And Zoom works to an extent, but interactions and relationships tend to help the most. Well, let's talk about exercise for a minute. We don't have to do exercise, you say, no marathons. What do we have to do? Um, there are several different types of exercise. Start wherever you can. What I suggest for my patients is that they start with walking, that they walk outdoors, that they find a walking buddy if they can, because exercise is one of those things that's always hard to push yourself to do on your own. So if you have someone else, that's great. The recommendations are about half an hour, five times a week, but you can do that in 10 minute slots also. You don't have to do it all at once. Strength training is also something that if you can get yourself into, it's really helpful because muscle mass starts declining, not at 70, not at 60, but in your 30s, okay? So you really need to build up that muscle. Oh, so you're kind of a good news, bad news bear here. The good news is this, and the bad news is I've been deteriorating for the last 42 years. That's what you're telling me. She's honest, Bill. She's honest. Well... So, Doctor, I, I would like to uh, ask you something. It's, I really have this towards the end of my list of things I want to uh, uh, ask you about, but I don't want to let it go by. One of the political issues of our time is, what about Joe Biden? And I would be interested to know what you think and what – I'm sure you're asked this question a lot. You're, you're an expert on aging. Uh, what is your – how about this? What, will you, what are you willing to share about us in your professional opinion with regard to Joe Biden's age? How's that? That's pretty general. Okay. So the first thing I would say is there is no more variable a group of people than those who are 80 and older. You've, we say in geriatrics, if you've seen one 80-year-old, you've seen one 80-year-old, okay? And that's because we've all had 80 years to be exposed to different things, to do different things, to get different diseases, all of that. That being said, we can look at Joe Biden. We hear some things from his doctors and stuff like that. He clearly exercises. He clearly eats right. He's trying to take care of himself. So 
how do we decide if he will still be in great shape when he's 86 if he should be elected? That's really your question, right? It, it is. And you can just happily do both sides of the interview. You're very good. So please go on. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, so I've been, <laughs> I've been asked this question in so many different ways. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's no, what people are most worried about is cognition. Yes. And I'll get into that in a second. What I'm going to say, though, is that everybody, as they get older ages, 80 is not the new 60. All right. You can be Martha Stewart and be on the, the swimsuit issue cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And she's amazing. And you can be Joe Biden and running for president. Okay. But you're, the inside of your body is still changing. Okay, certain things are happening. You're going to walk more slowly. You're going to respond to medications differently. You're going to not sleep for the most part. It's going to be harder to get a good night's sleep. Okay, so there you're going to be up to go to the bathroom more often at night, whether you have a prostate or not. So there are things that come with aging. <laughs> and that's just how it is. Okay, if people are going to get upset because Joe Biden falls, or Bruce Springsteen falls, it's going to be a problem because 30% of people who are over 65 fall every year. Okay. They don't necessarily hurt themselves, but they fall. There are balance things that happen. Um, there are strain things that happen. So we need to accept those sorts of things, but cognition is the real thing. And wisdom in general does not decline with age. It's more, memory and being able to learn new things that we're concerned about. And there are normal aging, which is not going to develop into dementia, which is what we're really concerned about. And then there's developing dementia. Okay. So some hospitals are actually starting to do cognitive testing on doctors who are 70 and older. And I feel that that's not a bad idea if we can figure out what the right tests are. And I would suggest that if we do that, it be administered to all presidential hopefuls, whatever their age, okay, before they become the nominee. And then we have to decide what do we do with this information before we start doing it. Could you, but I think his chances, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm really interested. Hold that thought on the, well, why don't you continue? Go ahead, that? go ahead. I'd like to know, I, I'm interested in presidential nominees. I'm also interested in the rest of us. Should we all have, of a certain age, have cognition, cognitive testing? And what does that mean? So the types of cognitive testing that are used are screens to begin with. They're not in-depth. Whereas for this, I would suggest a more in-depth cognitive testing. The screens basically say how far below normal are you, if at all, okay, for your age? Because as I said, there are things that happen as you get older. The United States Preventive Services Task Force does not recommend screening for older adults. If there's a concern, then definitely check it out. Well, let me ask you this, because you've touched on what I think is the great fear for those of us in of a certain age. By the way, how old are you? I'm, I just turned 72. I'm in, I'm in the ballgame. Okay. Okay. We're going <laughs> to welcome to the club or I welcome us to the club. Thank you. Um, I, is there some way to try to prevent dementia? 
or Alzheimer's, because that, I think, is the huge fear for those of us who are getting older, which is, I'm willing to put up with almost anything, but not that, and I don't seem to have a choice one way or the other. So there's not a way to prevent it. There's a way to make it less likely, but your genetics have something to do with it, and what you've done in the 70 years before now has something to do with it, okay? So the best thing, actually exercise has been shown to be the best thing that you can do. Getting a good night's sleep makes a difference because you can consolidate your memories. Eating a low red meat, high vegetable, high, pro, high uh, fruit diet seems to help. So there are things like that and keeping yourself engaged and you know use it or lose it philosophy definitely seems to help. That said, once it starts, it's, there aren't a lot of things that can slow it down. And there's a lot of work being done right now trying to figure out if we try and intervene earlier before you know that you've got a problem, will that help? And so those are the studies that if you're really concerned, you might want to go and see if there is something called the Alzheimer's disease and related center, ADRC, in your area, okay? Because they have all these trials going on. Bottom line on this, there is no medication. And other than the healthy lifestyle recommendations that you've made, there's not much to do. That's true. The one thing I didn't mention is medications can cause things that look like dementia. So make sure you go through your medications with your physician and get rid of those that you don't need or switch them to something that's less likely to affect your memory. We are speaking with Dr. Roseanne Leipzig. She is the author of Honest Aging, an insider's guide to the second half of life. Let's take a quick break and come back. We'll have a few more questions on, well, how to stay young. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 8.15, 12.15, and 4.15. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You take a classic like Caesar salad and start to mess with it, that could get you into trouble. Things could go wrong. The Caesar salad at Paul and Elizabeth's is a radical departure from the classic Caesar. And fortunately, in this case, things have gone rather right. Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, a Caesar salad unlike any other, with romaine or kale or both, with balsamic onion, roasted red peppers, capers, smoked salmon, and the crowning touch, toasty hot polenta croutons. 
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Roseanne Leipzig, who is an who is a doctor at Mount Sinai and is a gerontologist and has a new book that we want you to know about, Honest Aging, an Insider's Guide to the Second Half of Life. We did ask you during the break, Doctor, this is Larry Hott's question, who's in with us. Larry is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, often with us, and will be with us later on in the program. Um, what do you do to age well? And you gave us an answer. I think you. I think it's always good to know personally what do the doctors actually do, as opposed to giving us advice. So, what have you done to age well? Um, it certainly isn't the genes. Okay, <laughs> I have um, treated my sleep apnea and used CPAP, and that has given me a much clearer brain. I have to say, um, I have lost a fair amount of weight. And I've taken red meat out of my diet and increased the fruits and vegetables. Okay. What about, I don't even want to ask, but I do, I guess. What about use of alcohol? What about use of uh, uh, cannabis? So let's start with alcohol because there's certainly more data on that. <laughs> okay. Um, so as you get older, pardon my expression, you become a cheaper drunk. Okay. And <laughs> so you get more bang for the buck for the same amount of alcohol. And that's because your body fat distribution changes and you may have noticed that. You've got a pot belly that you didn't used to have. You have wiggly arms that you didn't used to have. Alcohol dissolves in the fluid portion of your body, same amount, less fluid, greater uh, concentration. I have friends so, who are gonna now look forward to getting older in a way they didn't two minutes ago. So thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so the recommendation for older adults is one drink. Now, what constitutes a drink differs depending on where you are, and I'm not going to get into that, but it's, you know, it's one drink a day. And the reason is that it can affect your mobility, falls, as well as cognition. Okay. Can we go back to one thing about cognition I want to ask you? Because I made this rather general statement, there are no... There are no drugs. There is no medication that is helpful. There is an enormous industry or based on people's fear of uh, cognitive loss, all sorts of supplements and the like. Do any of them work? None of the supplements, I mean, I can talk about the prescription drugs if you'd like, but none of the supplements have been shown to work with the exception of B12 if you are B12 deficient. And as you get older, you are more likely to get B12 deficient because you can't take the B12 off the food. So you need to take it in a pill form. Not everybody, but many people. And there is a test for B12 deficiency. Yes, absolutely. And, and so that is something you can do to, uh, to check to see whether or not you have that particular vitamin, which is, vitamin, which is particularly important for cognition. So that's something we can right. do. 
Yes. Okay. So, uh, marijuana? Marijuana. I wish we had more data. <laughs> okay. Well, that was it good. Is, I thought you were going to say, I wish we had more pot, but no, okay. We wish we had more data. Got it. I'm in New York. You're in Massachusetts. We've got lots of pot. <laughs> it's also true. Without getting high. But besides that, um, I think there is, I have a concern. And my concern is if you're going to try it, okay, if you're going to use it, let your doctor know, all right? Because it interferes with other medications, as can any supplement. And and I have had two patients, one of whom fell because of the combination of that with other medications she was taking, and another of whom woke up really not herself because of the CBD she took. So I think you need to be careful. And like with every supplement, there's no regulation. You don't know what's in these, these bottles you're getting. So you just need to be careful. Okay. So th- this... Uh, uh advertisement that I see all the time on television for something made from jellyfish uh, that's going to help my brain. I wish, you know, I think if you change your diet, you'll, you'll do a lot better. Okay. Even if you get out for a walk, you'll do a lot better. Okay. So uh, I guess we should ask, uh, not because I looked it up first, but I did uh, in your book and I went to the uh, index and Goodness gracious, there is a there is a piece, uh, a long piece uh, in the index called sexual concerns. So talk to how to put this. Talk to us about sex. <laughs> so, if as they would say, while standing on one foot. So <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. Many people who are older still have sex, like sex. If you didn't like sex when you were younger, you probably won't like it when you're older. You know, it won't matter to okay, you. Okay, well, let's talk about the, uh, we liked it when we were younger. Let's, let's talk to that crowd. I got a lot of, sm- I have a lot of smiles in the studio on that one. <laughs> so it takes a little more effort than it took when you were younger. That's probably the biggest thing, that you need more pressure. You need more stimulation. Many people get less stimulation from thoughts than they do from actual physical stimulation as they get older. Foreplay is not quite so much of a foreplay. It's a necessity for many people as they get older. So I think those are things to recognize. It is something to talk with your medical care provider about if you're having a problem, because there are things that can be done to help. And the other thing I'll just mention while we're here is touch hunger. A lot of people as they get older just are not being touched, okay? And just being touched for 15 minutes can really relax someone and, and decrease anxiety, even if it doesn't end in an orgasm. Okay, now Buzz has a question. Yeah, doctor. Uh, so here's, I think, I love answering, asking questions to which it's impossible to find an answer, but here's my question. We live in a rural area. I live on a uh, 1,500 feet where we have fields that we've been maintaining for 50 years, and we have seven gardens that we love to work in, and I'm constantly trying to negotiate my safety because I like, you know, I'm getting older, uh, with, if I don't do this, then I am capitulating and I'm not going to stay as healthy as if I do do this, versus I'm imperiling myself if I climb on that ladder and prune that pear tree. So... Uh, do you have a formula that people can use when they're confronted with this dichotomy? My formula is 
to try and learn to be interdependent, not to have to be independent and in doing everything by yourself, not to be dependent and having somebody else do everything for yourself, figure out what really matters to you and what can help you do it safely, okay? Because you really don't wanna fall off that ladder and break your hip. We all know what happens there. It's usually not a pretty story, but there are things out there that can help you. So if you're gardening and you find that, you know, it's uncomfortable, you can find things to sit on, you can find, you know, um, tools that will help you if you're having trouble with your grip. But the most important thing is that you have an enjoyable, engaging and meaningful old age. Otherwise, why bother? Okay. So I think it's really important to try and figure out what can help you do that. And for some people, it's hearing aids. For some people, it's a wheelchair sometimes, you know, but just make sure you're still getting, having a life and not just existing as you get older. We're going to leave it there. We've been talking with Dr. Roseanne Leipzig. Her new book is Honest Aging, an insider's guide to the second half of life. Take control of your health and well-being. Doctor, thanks so much for a really fascinating and encouraging conversation. We really appreciate your time, and we really appreciate your book available at your local independent bookstore. Thank you again, doctor. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and fun. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The problems continue for Family Dollar in East Hampton. The business has been forced to close for a second time this year for fire safety code violations. Fire Chief Christopher Norris says the code violations were similar to those that caused a shutdown in March. More than half of renters in the Pioneer Valley are cost burdened, meaning they pay more than 30% of their income toward housing expenses. The number of people experiencing homelessness is also on the rise. Gina Gavoni, Executive Director of Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority, explains. We need to build homes more quickly and work with communities to make sure that we're bringing in younger people and households with children to continue our communities so that we don't face obsolescence in this part of the state. During the pandemic, the cost of houses rose exponentially, forcing people to apply for rental aid programs. Keith Ferry, president and CEO of Wayfinders, says his organization helped distribute about $150 million in rental assistance in Western Mass. Pre-COVID, those numbers were in the, the tens of thousands, but not in the millions. Wayfinders is on track to build 40 units of affordable housing in Ludlow, a project that was delayed by about two years due to public opposition. Williamsburg will now have a full-time fire chief after much debate between the select board and finance committee. Voters supported the full-time position at Monday's town meeting, and the change will take effect January 1st. Town and school budgets totaling over $9 million also passed, as well as five new vehicles for the highway, fire, and police departments. Mostly cloudy today, still a smoky haze around and still some scattered, mainly light showers, a high of 64 to 68. Variable clouds tonight, chance for showers, overnight low 44 to 50. Sun cloud mixed tomorrow, scattered showers, even the chance for a thunderstorm in the afternoon, a high in the mid to upper 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El presidente Joe Biden vetó el miércoles una legislación que habría cancelado su plan para perdonar la deuda estudiantil. Es una vergüenza para las familias trabajadoras de todo el país que los legisladores continúen con este intento sin precedentes de negar un alivio crítico a millones de sus propios electores, dijo Biden en un comunicado al anunciar su veto. A pesar del veto, el plan de Biden aún no es seguro. La Corte Suprema de los Estados Unidos, dominada por una mayoría conservadora, está revisando un desafío legal que podría eliminar el programa. Se espera una decisión este verano. Si se promulga, el plan de Biden perdonaría hasta 20 mil dólares en deuda de préstamos estudiantiles federales para prestatarios que ganen menos de 125 mil dólares por año. Los pagos de préstamos estudiantiles se detuvieron al comienzo de la pandemia de COVID-19. Sin embargo, se reanudarán en agosto para cualquier persona cuya deuda no sea eliminada por el plan de Biden. En otras informaciones, el ex vicepresidente Mike Pence, que sirvió lealmente a Donald Trump durante cuatro años, criticó el miércoles a su ex jefe por el ataque al Capitolio de Estados Unidos en 2021 mientras lanzaba su campaña para la nominación presidencial republicana de 2024. Pence emitió su condena más contundente hasta la fecha del papel de Trump en el ataque del 6 de enero, cuando los partidarios del entonces presidente irrumpieron en el Congreso de los Estados Unidos para tratar de evitar que los legisladores certificaran la victoria electoral de Joe Biden. Creo que cualquiera que se ponga por encima de la Constitución nunca debería ser presidente de Estados Unidos, y cualquiera que le pidiera a alguien más que lo pusiera por encima de la Constitución nunca debería volver a ser presidente de Estados Unidos, dijo Pence en un discurso en Iowa que da inicio a la competencia por la nominación republicana el próximo año. Yo soy Johan Rashid Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This is our Thursday Half Faith segment, and we have with us today Rabbi Ricky Kozowski from Beta Hava, the Uh, Reformed Jewish Congregation in Florence and the Reverend Dr. Reverend Dr. Marissa Eggerstrom from the Florence Congregational Church who share a building that has been much in the news. It's the Bombeck Center. And I would like to know how the controversy and the recent controversy has affected you and your congregations. Let me start with you, Reverend Dr. Marissa Eggerstrom, Reverend at the Florence Congregational Church. What has happened or not happened? Oh, thank you so much. Boy, it's been a lot. Um, you know, we've been in this process of uh, trying to figure out how to use the building for years, how to make a viable congregation again, um, you know, in this place that has been so meaningful to so many people over the years. And, you know, partnering with Bombix has been this giant infusion of energy and collaborative potential and exciting new ways to serve our community, you know, for a broader group of people than just, you know, the folks who have made this their home for a long, long time. Um, with all of this uncertainty, you know, what's been strange is how little communication the city has had with us. And so, you know, each time we're given some new set of circumstances to deal with, we don't know what that means for the church, you know, so... Some of our, our latest things we're hearing is that, you know, we're limited in what our outdoor activities can be. Now we can't have any alcohol, even so much as a champagne toast at weddings. And 
I'm struggling to understand, you know, if if we are supposed to run all of our programming by a set of disgruntled neighbors and whoever they're working with at the city, you know, before we can just continue being a church. It's it's frustrating, it's demoralizing, it's deeply disappointing. Do you think uh, this really makes, is the this you know, is the neighbor out our path forward? a whole lot harder than it already was. Do you really think this is the neighbors, that that's what this is about? Yeah, that's been very clear. Um, you know, last month when all this started, uh, it's a matter of public record that the fire department was responding to a noise complaint from one of the neighbors, which is really strange because the fire department doesn't typically respond to noise complaints. That's not in their lane. And yet that's what their own documents say. And that's what was confirmed to Cassandra and the Bombix team. So and that's been in the papers and that's, that's all public record. And then, you know, the latest is that there was a licensing commission hearing last night and these same five households uh, have essentially asked the city to change its regulations so that Bombix events have to end earlier, um, that there can be no alcohol and that, the whole group of us, all of our programming, we're limited to six events outside a year. So Ricky and I this morning are trying to figure out what does that mean for Rosh Hashanah? What does that mean for weddings? What does that mean for funerals? What does that mean for church picnics, church festivals? If we're always, you know, trying to guess what will and will, you know, will not displease the neighbors, you know, where's freedom of religion? Where's access to our own property? The Ricky you just referred to is Rabbi Ricky Kozowski of the Beta Hava, the Reformed Jewish congregation that shares this building. So, Rabbi Ricky, how has this controversy and last night's uh, uh, meeting or decision by the licensing licensing commission? Is it? Um, yeah. How how does that affect uh, Beta Hava? Um, thank you, Bill, and thank you, Reverend Rissa. So. Um, this is a huge impact on us. So Beta Hava has been uh, sharing the space here for close to 25 years since the beginning of, of our synagogue's founding. And um, un unless unless we can really fully be here with the church, with Bombix, in a way that uh, enables us to also flourish and be grounded, like I'm not sure what the future will be for us, for our developing our own programs also. So it's been very stressful, I will say. We're completely part of the team. It is it's just incredible how much work this is taking to, I guess, sort of have buy-in for a vision that's a, that's a multifaceted uh, vision of arts and culture, spirituality, education, community center, like real services to the whole community that really lift us up in this, following this really dark time in, in the world. Um, so the specific things, it's like, I don't know what that means if, if Bombix is, like, we're part of Bombix now. So if Bombix is limited to only six outdoor events, if that becomes a thing, like, if that's really what sticks, I don't know what that, how that impacts us. Could you stop there? Could you stop there for one second? Because I don't understand yeah. it. Why would a concern about fire in the building have anything to do with outside events? I don't, I don't get it. Could you explain that to me? Well, I, I don't think the issue really was fire. We, I don't, I don't, I mean, I care about fire safety more than anything. We all do, but that's not what the issue is. There's a, there's really an attempt to, um, it feels like, like squash this incredibly vibrant, brilliant vision 
of using this space and also bringing in programs and developing in this right here in this home that has been this historic place for you know for for all these years and um it doesn't affect it so like we would my synagogue would not have survived the pandemic without being able to hold our religious services outside there's a gorgeous backyard i mean it's huge it's a historic place under the pine trees where where frederick Douglass and sojourner truth and and david ruggles and abolitionists gave speeches so that space has always been used as an outdoor space before or after you know even before there was a such thing as amplification but um that's what that space has historically been used for. So, you know, we, we've come to really grow and we want to be able to have outdoors, outdoor events. I mean, look at, look at Tanglewood and all these places and that people flock to and Jacob's pillow and, you know, outdoor spaces. Like we have this very sweet place that has, uh, the sound levels have been tested and tested and they're under the, they are in, they're in compliance with all regulations. They're even under, under the sound levels, as far as I understand, they've been tested again by the city. They, like, this is a really sweet opportunity for outdoor gatherings. You know, when weather permits and when it, and when it fits the events and the and the concept. So that's just a limitation that has nothing to do with fire safety. Right. You know, so what was this hearing last night? What committee was in front of? I don't get it. How do we get from concerns about fires to saying that Beta Hava? and the Florence Congregational Church can't have outside events. I don't get that at all. Who, right. who decided Bob, that? Would, yeah, well, and we collaborate it, on a lot it, of these. Well, I, my understanding of when the fire uh, captain first came, that it was because of a complaint about noise based on, on um, some of the neighbors. Uh, not all of the neighbors. There's other neighbors who think this is a great idea and a wonderful infusion and development for this area. But... Um, that initial coming into the building was based on a complaint about noise, which then triggered like one, I don't, I mean, I don't know exactly, but it triggered this, uh, you know, thing about the fire safeties, which was not the original well, I can, I can speak to that. reason to shut down Bombix. Like oh, okay. Like, let's go back to the Reverend Dr. Marissa Eggerson from the Florence Congregational Church. Reverend. Yeah. So this was a meeting of the licensor commission. And what was at issue was that the same, you know, five households, we're talking about five households of neighbors, had brought to the Licensure Commission uh, a request to modify Bombix's entertainment license uh, to restrict, you know, the activities that go on. But as is the case when sort of policy is made, you know, here and there, on an as-needed basis and catering to particular, you know, groups of people, um, it nobody thought through the implications for all of the other constitutive groups at 130 Pine. So it's not clear at this point what this means for the church, for the synagogue, but it seems, you know, what's clear is that five households are driving regulatory practices around this in Northampton. So that's that's what's most concerning. So. You know, it's it's about fire, but really it's about noise. Yes, that's confusing, but it's really about five households using every angle to shut down a really beautiful partnership, which, yes, is complex. 
which doesn't make sense to people. Wait, but, you know, how are you a church and also a synagogue and also a preschool? And also where does the art happen? Where does the music happen? And where does the food happen? And we say, you know, it, all the things happen in all the places because we all work together. That's the beauty of the thing. So what's missing here is an appreciation for the complexity of the situation and really a model for sharing space and serving a variety of community needs at the same time. Reverend Dr. Marissa Eggerstrom from the Florence Congregational Church, Rabbi Ricky Kozowski from Beta Hava. We're going to have you back on. We're going to continue this conversation in coming shows. We really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for keeping on. We really appreciate you and the work you're doing. Thank you so much. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair, Saturday, June 17th. Ten bookstores, including Broadside. Thousands of books. A book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry. And children's books. First editions, limited editions, art books, signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and 10 more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the plaza behind Thorns, Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read? Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. is Talk the Talk with Joe Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And this is one of our continuing favorite segments, Cool Films with Emmy Award-winning, Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hot. Larry Hot, what do you have for us today? Well, good morning. I have something very different this morning. I'm talking about two books and two films that are all related, and they're related to the fires in Quebec that are affecting our air quality. Really? Yes, a very topical idea. First, I'm going to quote from one of the books. Okay, and you might know the title from what I'm going to say here. I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs. Aha. Okay, so we got lungs there. We got, we got lungs. Particulate matter, trees. We have, we have particulate <laughs> matter, and we have children's books. And what does this have anything to do with, with film any, exactly? With anything. Okay, so I was inspired by a book I just read called Overstory. 
by Richard Powers, won the Pulitzer Prize. It's from a few years ago, 2018. An amazing book. And this book basically follows six, seven characters who all have some kind of obsession with trees. And as one of the reviews about this book wrote, nobody wants to read a whole 600-page book about trees, but they will read about people because there's a narrative there and an emotion. So this book has really influenced a lot of people. Uh, it changes a lot of minds, and it has one very important aspect to it. It gets into the research about how trees communicate. And they do. Then trees they do. talk to each other. They, they do. They talk in tree, but they talk. <laughs> they, they do. They have deep conversations. Uh, maybe they read books. They probably have a book club. <laughs> that, 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 that would be ironic since the <laughs> trees tend to make the paper, which tend to create, create exactly. the books. Exactly. It's kind of a Maybe they do it with e-books. <laughs> it's kind of cannibalism among trees. Well, a few years ago, a film came out in 2019 called Fantastic Fungi or Fungi or Fungu, whatever you want to call it. F F-U-N-G-I. It's a very popular film. It's on Netflix, and I actually talked about it on this show. Uh, and this film talks about the mycelium, which is beneath the surface, under the trees, and how it sends messages to the trees, and the trees can react and protect themselves, which is a big theme in the book Overstory. Right. They warn about diseases and things like right. that. And fire, well, which we have now going on. So I thought this is very topical, and we hear a hear a clip from the film Fantastic Fungi, or Fungi, you'll get a sense of what this film is about. My mission is to discover the language of nature, and I believe nature is intelligent. There is a world under the earth, full of magic and mystery. It holds the consciousness of nature's connection to all living things. You know, these mushrooms, they can heal you, they can feed you, they can kill you. It's not like a vegetable, and it's not like an animal, but it's somewhere in between. They support life, they convert life. As you're walking through, it's about 300 miles of fungi. Under every footstep that you take, and that's all over the world. The bulk of the organism is growing underground, and it's composed of these long threads called a mycelium. Almost everyone knows about the computer internet. The mycelium shares the same network design. It's amazing what we don't know about mushrooms. They really are. It's amazing what we don't know about mushrooms. It's also amazing what we don't know about trees. Um, so I'm making a recommendation here. I'm giving you a reading assignment. Read The Lorax by, by Dr. Seuss, our, our local hero from, from Springfield, uh, which was written in the early 1970s. The publication date is 1971. Uh, that'll give you an idea how long. <laughs> I mean, if he's aware of it in 1971, what is happening to the environment? In fact, uh, he, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, the question of fires destroying land in the United States goes back to the late 19th century when there were enormous forest fires all over the West with smoke blanketing the, blanketing the country like, like it is now. And there was a recognition that we needed a better forest policy and this is where the Forest Service comes in. Not really to save the trees, but to save the timber industry. And that, is, in turn, is related to water power, because if you don't have trees, then you have flooding, which destroys rivers and reservoirs and dams. So 
like mycelium, which connects everything underground, all of these issues are connected. So I'm recommending the Lorax as your starter book. It's easy. <laughs> it's 20 pages. Great, great pictures. And things probably rhyme. And, uh, they do, and they're silly and, ri and ridiculous, but memorable. But I just want to point out, there was a precursor to the Lorax, and that was Smokey the Bear when I was a kid. That's right. There was a PSA, a public service. Only you can prevent fire fires. Only me. And, and Smokey was completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I was always confused about that. There was Smokey right on my television set telling me as a seven-year-old, only you can prevent forest fires. How can well, I Well, that was because they wanted you, you as a seven-year-old, not to throw your cigarette <laughs> 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 or let your campfire get out of control. But what was wrong about Smokey, and that this has changed, they don't use Smokey anymore, is because it made people think that fires were bad. They're only bad when they are uncontrolled and started by human beings as opposed to lightning or controlled fires in order to clear out forests because we have learned that uh, cl clear cutting and uh, letting forest, uh, preventing forests doesn't allow the forest to grow the way it was meant to grow. In fact, we, there's records you can show. Uh, people have studied going back into the early Native American history of the country that the Native Americans used fire to clear, to clear the forest so they would grow better and also to clear land. Uh, it's a very, very complicated history and I'm, what I'm doing now is simplifying it too much. Uh, but I'm recommending that you start with the Lorax to give a sense of how- And after we've, and after we've completed that reading assignment, what do you want us to do? And then I want you to read Richard Power's book, Overstory, which is kind of a, a pun because we're talking about the understory. But the overstory is the people on top of the land and what they do with it. One of the main characters in the book, there's a couple of them, but there's, uh, it involves what have come to be called eco-terrorists, people who sit in the top of uh, major uh, pine trees, sequoia trees, to protect them. You know, there's only 3% of the original sequoia trees left. And after reading some of the history of eco-terrorism, people who have burned down Forest Service buildings, uh, timber industries, even research stations, I realized that Richard Powers in Overstory is drawing from real people. In fact, he also takes the scientists that uh, are talked about in Fantastic Fungi and turns it into a character that he creates, but it parallels her life. So it's obvious when you read Overstory that he's basing this on real facts. Could you go back to the film for a minute? Which one? Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic Fungi. fungi. Yeah. I, I'm really interested to know, what do these trees say to each other? There's a forest fire coming. We're all about to die. Well, what happens? It's, it's chemicals. It's things that they say, okay, time to shut down your production or time to up the amount of uh, you know, xylem and phloem uh, flowing, you know, amount of sap flowing, things like that. Uh, it, it's, more, it's obviously more detailed than that, but it's, it's, it's not the way we would communicate but there is some kind of action going on between the trees and they can tell, particularly if one tree is sick, other trees might send it nutrients in some way. Um, this is what Fantastic Fungi gives you in a beautiful way. I want to just um, uh, emphasize that the film is gorgeous to look at and fun. It has the best time-lapse photography of mushrooms growing that I've ever seen. Of course, I don't see that much time-lapse photography of mushrooms. Um, it also very very hot breaking news. Spence is <laughs> looking at time lapse photography of mushrooms. Well, there was. Wait, I've actually seen some of those. It's, it's quite a, amazing because they incredible. actually do grow pretty darn quickly. And I also used to spend a lot more time with mushrooms <laughs> when I was younger. And the film definitely gets into the psychedelic uses 
of mushrooms, and that's kind of controversial. And you can uh, act. We had a guest on earlier, an honest agent. I don't think that she would approve of too much use of mushrooms. That's a, that's the fantastic part of fungi. <laughs> you know, that's one of the reasons that's called fantastic fungi. Uh, the other film, and if we have time for a very short clip from a film called "If a Tree Falls." a story of the Earth Liberation Front. Get an idea of what inspired Richard Powers. I know we only have a minute, so let's just hear 30 seconds of this clip. On the night of the arson, they put on their masks and then placed the five-gallon fuel containers and activated the timing devices. The Earth Liberation Front is turning up the heat again. Igniting devastating blazes all across the country. Fire bombings included attacks on lumber mills, wild horse corrals, and meat packing. So these attacks on lumber mills were considered terrorism. This started right after 9-11 when we had the, the Homeland Security was started and the FBI was tracking down all these people and they were getting sentenced, life sentences for some of these arsons, even if nobody was killed. If you read... Richard Powers' overstory. There are characters in that who would do exactly what the characters in this film called If a Tree Falls, A Story of the Earth Liberation Front by Marshall Curry, 2011. It's on Amazon. It is an excellent film by an excellent filmmaker. And you recommend both these films? Both of these films. I, I think you could watch those two films, read The Lorax and Richard Powers' overstory, and you will be educated on this issue. Larry Hott, thank you so very much. This indeed has been Cool Films with Larry Hott on Talk the Talk. Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. GreenfieldSavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. WHMP North. Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And we are blessed for about a year and a half now. You know, as the smoke sort of encompasses... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> here in the studio it's terribly smoky and brian adams our science and sustainability expert professor emeritus from greenfield community college who has been enlightening people about the threats to the environment for decades now has been um offering us every week uh, another expert another interesting person who can talk to us about the world in which we live 
We have a lot of coughing going on in the studio. We do, and uh, it's nothing to joke about. I mean, this whole wildfires and burning down in Canada and the really horrible air quality around here, and one can't ever call an incident of weather-related fires climate change, but oh my goodness, uh, something is going on out there. And I woke up in the middle of the night having a real hard time. Uh, you know, our, our kids live in Brooklyn, and they're having a very oh hard God, time. New Classes have been canceled, and... Yeah? Yeah, it's terrible. So our listening audience, be careful out there and uh, and watch your physical activity at least today. But speaking of physical activity, we have the first science quiz of the day. <laughs> um, so listeners, put on your thinking caps and see if you can answer this question. What is the longest hiking-only footpath in the world? <gasps> okay, don't say anything yet. All Think right. about it. Another hint, it goes from Maine to Georgia, or maybe Georgia to Maine, however you want, uh, 2,198.4 miles as measured in 2023. Buzz, what do you think? What are we talking about? Is it the Route 91 trail? No, for goodness sakes. Buzz, buzz, you're out. Uh, the Appalachian Trail. And here to talk about this remarkable trail, um, our guest Eric Weld, who just came back a week and a half ago from finishing up in its entirety all 2,198.4 miles. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. An honor to be here and talk about the AT. So I, I see his sneakers are smoking. Ooh. Uh, that, <laughs> no, that was down in North Carolina with the Smokies. Okay, they've, um, they've uh, settled down by now. Eric, why is the first question. Why would you walk 2,198.4 miles? Tell us about that. Well, I love that you asked the question, the question why. So this is a qu question that I've addressed in my, in my blog, um, which we can talk about later. But uh, I have the question why is a question that comes up a lot in any time you do adventure and when I rode across the country and other walking t hikes that I've done. So the deal is, Brian, there is no answer to the question why. There's no reason why you do these things. You have to have the mindset going in that you're just doing what you're doing. Because if you start asking the question, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this punishment? Then it's a danger. It's a slippery slope. And things start to go downhill from there. And that's when I think the idea creeps into people's minds that they don't know why they're doing this. And then next thing they know, they don't make it. Because the mental part is the hardest part of any type of this adventure. So my short answer is there's no answer to the reason why, to the to question why. But I can give one other more practicable answer for people who are looking Please. for it. I do these things because I'm looking to get the whole, everything out of life that I can. So these I want to experience... These things being extreme adventures. Yes, uh -huh. like the AT. Uh -huh. So I want to experience the twos and threes of life. I want to experience the eights and nines of life. At home at my desk, I experience four, five, six, if this makes any sense to folks. And so by going out and uh, going through the punishment of doing these adventures, but also getting the triumphs and the ecstasy, you have days that are drudgery that are in the two and three range, but then you have to go through those to come out on the top of a mountain with a beautiful blue sky and experience the eights and nines. Tell us about some of those eights and nines. What were some of the highlights of this uh, six months? How long did it take you? I know you broke it up in two. We'll talk about that in a moment. But 
How, how long? How many months? Yeah, it took me six months total, uh-huh. uh, four months from June 30th to October 27th, and then March 18th to May 16th. And tell us about some of the highs. Some of the highs are uh, not easy to express or explain, but they're mostly little moments when you, such as I can say, I can specify on top of Saddleback Mountains in Maine, in southern Maine. It was the first time I really felt like I have trail legs now, I can do this. Um, all the three weeks before that was pure drudgery. Um, so that was a moment of triumph when I felt like maybe I can, maybe I can do this whole thing. Um, other moments of, uh, of, of triumph were the Smoky Mountains were spectacular. Smoky um, Mountains in North Carolina? In North Carolina. It kind of skirts the North Carolina-Tennessee border for a while. And also, I have to say, Virginia, I experienced so many setbacks that when I crossed the Tennessee border from Virginia, it was also a moment of triumph because things began to smooth out. I regained my trail legs, and the rest of the trail was, was uh, wonderful from there on. Virginia, I'm reading it was a home, is the home to the um, most miles of the Appalachian Trail, 550 miles, I believe. Tell, tell me again, how long did it take? Four months the first time? Yes. And then, and then what happened at the end of four months? At the end of four months, well, as soon as I crossed the northern border of Virginia, you I... You were hiking north to south. I was hiking north started to south. Started at Katahdin yeah. in Maine? Yep. Is that right? Uh-huh. The hard way. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, as soon as I crossed the Virginia border, I contracted a, a case of COVID, and I spent a week in a hotel room isolated with a high fever. Um, after that, I was still determined to get back on the trail, and I pushed right back up to 18, 20 miles a day but way too fast. Two weeks went by, and I developed a stress fracture in my right foot. That gave me no choice but to come off the trail, come back home, and spend the winter recovering. It was a heartbreak, and it was a a difficult time to persevere through. And then you got right back on the trail four months later? Yes. I had the plan the minute I left the trail to come back to the trail in March um, with a healed stress fracture in my right foot and a new determination and uh, all, the, all the safety and, and patience instilled in my mind from that experience. And I proceeded to hike south from the place I left off the trail in uh, north of Daleville, Virginia, um, only to get a shin splint three weeks later and take three more days off before I crossed into Tennessee. I want to read something that you wrote for the Gazette, because follow, we followed you uh, in your writings Thank for you. the Gazette, which was, which was fun. Um, and this talks about... You're coming back from the stress fracture in your, in, in your right foot. I'm, I'm going to quote you on this. Um, I've recognized an enlightening phenomenon. When things don't go your way, when they diverge from your initial plan and force you to detour, you experience things you never would have had had you completed the journey as you first intended. You meet different people than you would have. You see different views. Most importantly, you come at it as a different person, a grown person, equipped with wisdom and perspective of having lived through a setback and readjusted to return and finish the endeavor. So that's really interesting. And in some ways, this stress fracture, this taking time off, enhanced the experience? Is that, am I, am I um, being Pollyannish about it? Um, no. And I wrote that? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely it enhanced the experience. But these are often phenomena that you can't realize until it only in, until it's only in retrospect. So in other words, 
it was a heartbreaking experience for me to come off the trail and have to interrupt the the plan that I had made. Um, and however, by about April, when I when I rejoined the trail, I started to see it in retrospect that my stress fracture and having come off the trail for the winter did me a favor in a sense. It did me a favor by showing, by giving me, first of all, I think I had better weather to hike through. The, the original plan would have had me finishing the trail around December 12th, and it would have been, it was already getting cold in October, and it would have been a a pretty difficult month of November going through the Smokies. It was cold in May and snowing. So in November and early December, it would have been grueling. So I escaped that and had, and secondly, by doing it in the way I did it, I experienced the trail in four seasons. So I got a little bit of winter in, having begun again in March. I got spring awesome weather, watching the trees bud, the, warm, the weather warming up. I got the summer last last summer through uh, Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. And I got the beautiful fall down through West Virginia, Virginia, Pennsylvania. It sounds incredible. Uh, your your, your uh, adoration for this process is contagious. But uh, I want to ask, excuse me, Brian, I want to ask Eric Weld. Um, I'm hearkening back to Cheryl Stryad. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She wrote that book upon which Reese Witherspoon's movie, Wild, uh, was based. I think that was an 1,100 miles uh, trek that uh, she took, and she said she did it because she didn't know how else to find her center after had li her life and certain events had knocked her off her center. And I'm going. I guess I'm going back to Brian's question about why and about your quote in the Gazette that Brian just shared with us. It, does it help you find your center when you take a trek like when you take on something like this? Whatever that means. Well, I love that reference. I appreciate that. So I certainly agree with that. I would put it in terms of um, I think life is out. I think life is out on the trail. Or for me, I'm living truly and deeply when I'm on an adventure, when I'm moving, when I'm challenging myself, when I'm living out of the ordinary of this life. Um, and when I'm experiencing a little bit of risk and overcoming it. So I do find my center, as Gerald Stride put it. Um, but for me, it's, I call it my, my, that's where I live. And so back here in civilization and home life, it's all, this is just, um, this is all preparation. It's always just, I'm in limbo here. I'm waiting for the next time I can move and be out on adventure and living my life and finding my center. And it's, it's, it's hard to come back from these adventures. I mean, is there a period of not just readjustment, but I want to say depression or anxiety about the real world? Not the real world. The real world is out there on the trail. And this world is very much more complicated and nuanced in ways that are so different from, from putting in the miles every day. It is difficult to come back. It's a difficult transition. This is, this is uniform to all hikers, through hikers of the AT that I've talked to or other long hikes. AT, Appalachian Trail. Appalachian Trail, thank you. Um, I'm not sure. I've, I, I need to study this more, what the, tra what the difficulty of the transition is all about. But there's no question that it's a, it's a hard transition to make. I think part of it is 
when we're out there adventuring or hiking the AT or the Pacific Crest Trail or anywhere else, we're doing something special. And I think we like who we are when we're doing that because we're challenging ourselves every day and we're overcoming challenge. We're, we're broadening our aspirations. Our dreams are bigger. Our, my creativity just goes off the charts when I'm hiking or moving in general. And so coming back here, the excitement level tamps down somewhat. That's something to deal with. And it's just ordinary life is, is uh, in comparison, it's, it's just not as exciting. So it's not as exciting. It's not as challenging. You don't go in as deep to yourself, I think. You don't have to. So it's We're all somewhere in there. And I'm sorry to give a less, a less nuanced, a less explained answer. But. We're talking with Eric Weld. Eric is an outdoor adventurist. Uh, he's a former public relations person at Smith College uh, who is now happily retired and hitting the trails. When we come back, we'll talk about some of your upcoming adventures and how you're writing about adventure, encouraging adventure, and researching adventure. So stick with us. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic, the lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't, but they are good. In fact, they're great on par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow base daters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College, in the sleepy part of town. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Eric Weld. Eric is an adventurous. He writes about in blogs and uh, researches aging adventurous. He's just completed a 2,198.4-mile trek, the entire length of the Appalachian Trail. During break, we were talking about books, Cheryl Strayed's Wild, which is just a wonderful book. And the book that has to do specifically with the Appalachian Trail is Bill Bryson's book, 
A Walk in the Woods, um, which uh, I'd, we'd like your take on, uh, Eric. Is that a book that captures the flavor? Or what, do you th- what, what do you have to tell us about that? <laughs> I, I love reading A Walk in the Woods. It's a hilarious book. I loved the character, uh, Cats. In fact, I met a hiker in Pennsylvania who was trail named Cats um, after that character. But I have to say, A Walk in the Woods was a source of derision among AT through hikers. Because, and, and I remember in Maine, in the 100-mile wilderness coming through there, a group of, of us were sitting in a shelter, and we were just going off on a walk in the woods. I wasn't so much. I, I appreciated the book. But they were talking about how Bill Bryson, he didn't even finish the trail. He lasted 800 miles or so, and then uh, he did it in sections after that. And so... For AT through hikers, the whole thing is the breadth of the trail. That's the difficulty. Lasting physically, yes, but mentally more so. A through hiker is someone who hikes the whole trail at one time. Exactly, uh, within one one year. That is from moment of setting foot on the trail to to finishing either northern or southern terminus. And so our guest Eric Wild, even though you took a break, is still a through technically a through hiker. Is there a hierarchy among hikers? I mean. Do people say, oh, you only did 18 miles today? Oh, well, I did 26. Or, oh, you're doing it in six months? Well, I'm doing it in four and a half months. Is there snobbery or one-up men or woman or they ship uh, when you're on the trail? There is decidedly not a, a snobbery or any kind of uh, hierarchy on the trail that I experienced. I think that's one of the strengths of and one of the beauties of the cohesion of through the through hiker community is we all support each other and one of the most common phrases you hear on the trail is hike your own hike there's no competition out there people are about do it your way appreciate being here being having the privilege of doing this and um, doing it the way you need to do it uh, hikers on the at have trail names um, that you that are it's not your real name right and and most people have those uh, what was your trail name? <laughs> My trail name is Laptop. And uh, the reason I have the name Laptop is because, unlike any other hiker I ever ran into, I carried my laptop along in my backpack. The reason is I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a blogger, and, um, at, and I actually worked part-time on the trail about 10 hours a week. So in my tent at night, I would oh, be... Oh, hold on. You work while hiking the entire Appalachian Trail. I did. Wow. It, uh, I loved it, and uh, I, I, had this con- I had this conversation with many a hiker who couldn't believe that I carried a laptop. Uh, I loved the balance. Uh, it's, a, it's, a day, it's eight to ten hours a day of putting yourself through a physical regimen, and uh, I loved the balance of having a me- some mental calisthenics at the end of the day to balance that with. And also, um, as a writer, I, I need to be creative, and I need some kind of uh, way to express that practically. So carrying the computer, which was probably about three and a half to four pounds. Which that's a lot of weight. That's three and a half pounds less of food that you can have. It was an easy calculation in the end. Um, I, I thought about it as, as a trial at first, coming through Maine. But three weeks in, I was thankful to have it. And uh, people carry five-pound cameras on the trail and other luxury items. So I saw it it in that regard. So Eric, laptop willed, I have to ask you, while I have this opportunity, could you tell people who are interested in doing maybe not that arduous a hike, but what kind of footwear 
do you how do you choose what footwear to use what clothes to take carry with you how to uh, protect yourself in the, from the weather? How do you, what do you do? And food drops, too. How, how, do you, how do you deal with food? Okay, there's a lot of info here. The number one thing I would say is if you're considering this type of adventure or any type of adventure, really, it's, you have to build up to it. I know there are a lot of young AT through hikers who just have never stepped foot on a trail, who just set out and do it. A lot of them don't make it. But it's important, I think, especially when you get up around my age and older, to, to practice a little bit first, especially when you're talking about preparing, packing and preparing your backpack. There are some must-have items. You have to have a bag of food or a, or a bare canister of food. You have to have some way to sleep and a shelter. You don't, that can be pretty rudimentary. Um, and footwear is something I take extremely seriously, having had foot injuries. Uh, so I go with a very supported Oboe's uh, sawtooth hiking shoe. It's a very heavy shoe uh, by hiking standards. A lot of people go with uh, light, very light trail runners, but that just would not do the trick for me. Um, so I think you have to try some things before really setting out on a serious adventure. Food drop. Uh, I could address food drops. Basically, I chose to get off the trail every three to four days, both for work and to resupply my food. Um, a lot of people have food drops in the hundred mile wilderness halfway through, so they don't have to carry ten days worth of food. Generally, we all carry the three mile to wilderness six days. in Maine. Correct? In Maine, yeah, uh -huh. we carry about three to six days worth of food in in general. In my experience, so you are a writer, you're a blogger, you're a researcher, you're an advocate of adventure and outdoor adventure. What are some of the projects you have going? And how, how do you encourage uh, older folks to sort of let loose and get on the trail, whether it's on a bike trail or a canoe trail or a hiking trail? Um, so I'll answer the first question, first part of that question first. Uh, I have a couple of uh, mini bite-sized adventures coming up because I'm ready for shorter adventures at this point. Uh, when I'm going to ride my bike across the state of Iowa in July, there's a, there's a annual race there called Ragbri, uh, sponsored by the Des Moines Register. And it's about 15,000 riders riding across 500 miles in six days across Iowa. One could ask why Iowa in July, but we won't go there. Keep, keep, keep going. <laughs> All right. And then I plan to come back and canoe the Connecticut River from source to sea. It's a 400-mile journey from the border of New Hampshire, Vermont, Canada, down to the Long Island Sound, um, and that's something I'm doing because I just, I want to get paddling. I want, I like to balance out my activities. And so I'm going to plan to do that in September. Um, hiking the Appalachian trail, biking the state of Iowa, canoeing the entire Connecticut river from source to sea. Um, pretty phenomenal, Eric. That's really interesting for people who want to keep up with your adventures. Can they contact you or is there a blog people can check in? Yes, thanks for asking. Um, my blog and my website is called agingadventurist.com. Um, adventurist is intentional because I'm not just an adventurer, but I'm, an, but I'm someone who studies adventure and uh, looks at all aspects of adventure. So agingadventurist.com, all lowercase one word. We've been talking to Eric. Well, Eric just completed the Appalachian Trail, all 2,198 point four miles of it. Amazing. He's got other adventures planned and is one who is an inspiration to older folks and younger folks too.
to get out there and discover the beauty of the wild in any way that they can. Maybe not hiking the entire Appalachian Trail at once, but Appalachian Trail runs through Massachusetts. Uh, We have some gorgeous sections in Massachusetts. And, of course, we're surrounded by beautiful areas to hike, the Green Mountains in Vermont and the White Mountains in New Hampshire. I just came back from the Adirondacks in New York, six million acres, and talk about hiking and paddling and biking Unbelievable stuff out there. So, hey, Brian Adams, Eric Weld, we have to take a break so I could cry in shame uh, at my lifestyle. We're going to take a break. No crying in shame. No, no, oh, no, okay. no. Whatever we can do is great. And you were up in that uh, apple tree pruning away. Uh, that uh, is an adventure. I'm going to walk to my car when I leave the studio. We're going to be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The problems continue for Family Dollar in East Hampton. The business has been forced to close for a second time this year for fire safety code violations. Fire Chief Christopher Norris says the code violations were similar to those that caused a shutdown in March. More than half of renters in the Pioneer Valley are cost-burdened, meaning they pay more than 30% of their income toward housing expenses. The number of people experiencing homelessness is also on the rise. Gina Gavoni, Executive Director of Franklin County Regional Housing and Redevelopment Authority, explains. We need to build homes more quickly and work with communities to make sure that we're bringing in younger people and households with children to continue our communities so that we don't face obsolescence in this part of the state. During the pandemic, the cost of houses rose exponentially, forcing people to apply for rental aid programs. Keith Ferry, president and CEO of Wayfinders, says his organization helped distribute about $150 million in rental assistance in Western Mass. Pre-COVID, those numbers were in the, the tens of thousands, but not in the millions. Wayfinders is on track to build 40 units of affordable housing in Ludlow, a project that was delayed by about two years due to public opposition. Williamsburg will now have a full-time fire chief after much debate between the select board and finance committee. Voters supported the full-time position at Monday's town meeting, and the change will take effect January 1st. Town and school budgets totaling over $9 million also passed, as well as five new vehicles for the highway, fire, and police departments. Mostly cloudy today, still a smoky haze around and still some scattered, mainly light showers, a high of 64 to 68. Variable clouds tonight, chance for showers, overnight low 44 to 50. Sun cloud mixed tomorrow, scattered showers, even the chance for a thunderstorm in the afternoon, a high in the mid to upper 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. 
It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 8.15, 12.15, and 4.15. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome to our weekly Take 5 segment uh, with Ruth Griggs, who always brings you some incredible uh, musicians and uh, venue operators and uh, people from the jazz world, the music world, to our attention. Who do we have today, Ruth? Today we have someone who is representing the jazz world and beyond, I have to say. And that is our dear friend Felipe Salas, who is uh, a professor of music at UMass Amherst and has done some amazing multi-instrumental compositions. Multicultural compositions. Multicultural compositions, the likes of which he will be releasing at Bombix on June 17th. So we wanted to have him on the air to talk all about his latest his latest project, which is an iconic is musical figure in so this valley. So thank you, Felipe, for being here. Thank you. You guys are embarrassing me here. <laughs> I told thank you. you I warned me. you. We're going to gush. <laughs> thank you. So um, again, as, as, as our theme often starts, uh, Felipe is um, someone who is gracing our presence from UMass Amherst, which um, continues to have a remarkable jazz program that has been gifting this valley with jazz for generations. How lucky are we, right? How lucky are we? And um, I need to let Felipe talk about this because, um, but his latest project, which is called Home is Here, with his Interconnections Ensemble, which has been um, together for about five, six, seven years, is is a remarkable piece of multi-instrumental music that um, tells the stories of the musicians who are playing in this piece. So with that brief introduction, would you tell us more about this amazing piece and the journey that you went on to create Home is Here? Sure, sure. So the idea of Home is Here is to bring the conversation about... um, citizenship and becoming an American from the perspective of uh, jazz artists. There's lots of people in the jazz community who are not originally from here. And so I wanted to have this conversation about what does it mean to make this place your home, you know, and what does it mean to come here to pursue a career in jazz and and so obviously to uh, highlight their beautiful musical skills and, and their contributions to the jazz world as, as well. So during the pandemic, I started having these Zoom conversations with a lot of 
the artists that I approached to um, to do the project, and uh, it was very interesting because people have very very different ways of thinking about. Uh, what it is to be here, what it is to be an American, what it is to be a jazz musician. And so the conversations were very inspiring, and I used that inspiration to write the pieces. So a lot of the pieces' titles come from things that people said and basically inspired also the writing in a way. And I know that, um, as you said, during the pandemic, um, you started talking to these musicians Prior to that, you spent a lot of time speaking to new immigrants to the United States. And <clears throat> in The New Immigrant Experience, which is a piece that you uh, produced, I believe it was in 2020 during the pandemic, uh, it was interesting because those individuals were actually telling their story along with and, 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 and interspersed with your incredible music which told a story in and of itself. This one, this particular piece, Home is Here, the music alone is inspired by the stories and the musicians are playing some of those pieces such as Paquita de Rivera and Melissa Aldana, but you don't hear their story verbally. Is Correct. that right? Yeah, yes. Um, well, it, the, the new immigrant experience, which I started working on in 2018 and it came out right as the pandemic <laughs> hit in 2020 it was more of a, a multimedia project so with the video part um, I, I basically interviewed um, DACA recipients people who had grown up in America undocumented and so I, I felt like this was a way in which I should give them the voice, you know, because it's it's very different. I think the the immigrant experience in their case is very different from the immigrant experience of most jazz artists, uh, which basically is is a is an experience where people grow up here with no voice, no rights, and things like that. So jazz artists come from a different perspective, which is they come here for the music a lot of the times. Um, they come here to study and then they stay, but in in most cases is not a situation where the person is undocumented or anything like that. So they've always have a different set of rights, and they're you know build a whole. Uh, they have a community, and and it's it's a very different experience. And I thought that the best way to talk about that is would be through their music. Uh, highlighting their musical personality, which is what they came here to do. Felipe Salas, I, I don't want to drift too far from home is here, but just piggybacking on what you were just saying, we lost a tremendous giant vocalist yesterday who in Ashrew Gilbert, who changed the landscape here. She affected so many of us in this country, her and her husband's, music uh it was and i'd love to hear your thoughts about her music and the impact she had as a brazilian on life here in this as country as a fellow brazilian <laughs> as a fellow brazilian yes that's a very interesting story because astrid gilberto is like she was an uh, a, an accidental musician in a way you know uh she was at the recording session when they were recording getz and gilberto which was 
featuring Stan Getz and obviously Jean Gilberto, who was uh, her husband at the time. And, but the producer was very nervous about the commercial viability of the record because Juan Gilberto ne uh, could not sing in English. He didn't speak English. He couldn't sing in English. And so during those production discussions and things like that, I think, I don't remember if Jobim or Juan Gilberto, somebody mentioned that Astrud, who was just there basically hanging out at the studio, uh, spoke English and could sing. A little. So, and, and something like that is so funny because that changes the history of the music. All of a sudden, you have somebody there who had never professionally sang, but has this beautiful voice and can sing in English, and everybody fell in love with it, and that's how she ended up, uh, you know. Just Sadly, she got very little compensation from that uh, recording. It's incredible. It's <laughs> been so played so many times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, anyway. it's interesting. I was when I was listening to uh, they were playing it on uh, Jazz on the Mode last night. Obviously, they were playing some of of that Stan Getz album, and I was thinking, okay, so Astrid has play has sung this. How many takes did they do? Was it one take? Did she just say, "Oh, okay, you want me to sing? I will sing this," and then it was off to the races? I was just I was dying of curiosity whether she was able to just pull that off like that. That's a very interesting question because. Um, João Gilberto was notoriously a perfectionist and a little bit of a neurotic. So I don't know how many takes they allowed him to do, but it would be an interesting thing to, you know, do some historical search and figure out what's going on <laughs> back in those those days, you know. But well, the, I just the, thought it'd be irresponsible not to mention her passing at age eighty three in the context of of home is here and. Here has been changed as a result of that. Well, Absolutely. and, and uh, we're going to play a little bit of um, the wonderful piece that features Paquito de Rivera, who is a world-famous, multi-Grammy award-winning saxophonist and clarinetist. Um, and Reinvention is a piece that told his story. And I, I'm, I'm just, before we do go on break, and, and we, we will before too long, can you tell us the... The story of reinvention and how that word came to describe that particular story from Paquito de Rivera that is in your piece. Sure. Well, Paquito is, has such an incredible um, career, and he's collaborated in so many, you know, jazz-related genres. He he played with Piazzolla. He played with Brazilian musicians. He's obviously played in Iraquere, which was, you know, the beginning of Latin jazz and all those things. So I've always, and of course, he plays also has a, cr a classical tradition. So I've always had that very um, in the back of my mind, even when I was talking to him about um, his career, his life, his uh, process of coming to the U.S. But, you know, in one of the things we were talking about in the process was this idea of, like, what, how do we go from here? This was the middle of the pandemic. You know, he was at home. And, and one of the things he said was, like, you know, I'm, as musicians, we, we're constantly reinventing ourselves. So I'm sure we'll, f you know, we'll figure something out. And the idea of reinvention, and it, it, it stuck with me, this idea of like playing with the words reinvention. And I thought, you know, he has this classical side, so I'll, I'll write a piece 
where the theme just keeps on morphing and going into these different styles. So it starts with something more classical in the veins of like a Bach invention, and then it goes into a more of like a tango-esque thing and a Brazilian thing, and then it ends up sort of in the more Cuban thing. Well, it's a 10-minute piece, as I recall, so I'm not sure we're going to be able to play all of it, but we'd love to play a little clip of it, Reinvention by Felipe Salas from his Home is Here CD. Listening to Reinvention, which is a piece by Felipe Salas featuring Paquito de Rivera on Felipe's new Home Is Here album. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program Intelligent Talk, Opinion, and Debate. Join me every weekday, noon to three, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP-WHMP
featuring Paquita de Rivera. And if you love that piece as much as I do, you need to be at Bombix in Florence on June 17th at 7 p.m. to listen to the Interconnections Ensemble, Felipe Salas's Interconnections Ensemble, playing, playing pieces from his new album. It is the CD release party uh, that night at Bombix. Thank you, Felipe, for bringing this incredible music to our valley Thank once you. again. Thank you, and I hope people uh, come up and support live music. It's really important that uh, we continue doing that. You know, I think uh, after the pandemic, people really, you know, realize the value of it. So let's keep going and support a place like Bombix, which is a, a great place to have in this area. It'd be so nice to come home to, right? <laughs> yes, home is here. Well, you know, um, one of the things that I find, again, so fascinating about your, your recent um, music, Felipe, is that it tells a story. And, and even though there will be no words spoken um, during Home is Here, when you just sit and listen to the music, you imagine this is Paquito de Rivera's story. This is Melissa Aldana's story, um, which is such a wonderful, unique approach, I think, to music. But one thing I do want to talk about also is, you know, it, you don't just snap your fingers and put together an ensemble and have, you know, multi-Grammy award-winning, internationally famous musicians coming together to record pieces that you have written over the course of years and years. I was wondering about a little bit of the business aspect of this. I know that you did this project not because you, you know, because you had a grant. You, you applied for and you got a grant. The business aspect of pulling together an album like this is remarkable, Felipe. It's very tiring. <laughs> I'll tell you that each each one of those records takes a couple of years from you know the very beginning of applying for grants and everything until it comes out, and that's quite fast because I'm impatient. I don't like to you know sit around. I like to get things done. But you know it took it took a, a well first you know a lot of thinking to think of a, a concept that I wanted to do with this record you know i had um i had met a, a paquito actually during the northampton jazz festival i came to the concert uh that you guys put together and the president was, of which is ruth griggs that was in 2018 that's when yes. we came back yeah so so i was i was uh starting um i was starting to get together my next project but i came to see Paquito because I've always loved his music and I've grew up listening to him. And coincidentally, all the musicians that play with, with him are friends of mine. So I came to backstage and I had just released my first Big Ben album. I gave, gave everybody a copy and not to be rude, I gave Paquito a copy, but I never thought Paquito would actually listen to it. You know, probably toss it, you know, who knows. But can you imagine how many records he gets, right? Um, and then a few weeks later, to my amazement, I got a message from him, like a, a public message on Facebook, on my wall on Facebook. And he was like, I loved every note of your record. I really love your music. I hope we could do something in the future. So I reached out and started thinking about, I was in the middle of making The New Immigrant, so it would have to wait. But I started thinking then and there, how do I 
have a project with Paquito de Rivera, and that idea of home is here started forming. And of course, then you have to look for money, you know, because nothing like that is for free. And so, how much money did you get in that grant? May I ask you that to put uh, this together? Well, it depends on the grant. The um, the grant that I got for this is a is an incredible grant called the Jazz Roads um, South Arts Artist Residency, and that was I think the the highest amount. I always obviously ask for the most amount because I have a lot of expenses. So I think I think the highest that they gave was forty thousand dollars, which is what I asked, and I was lucky enough to to get that. It was it's very. Some of those grants are very difficult to get. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of, of forms and things that you have to, um, you know, you have to have a lot of patience and you have to have a lot of focus. And it takes, it takes grant writing skills, which I've been writing grants for decades now, you know. That's, that's part of the One of the job. things that you learn being a professor at, at University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is a huge research and, and grant writing university, right? It is. Yeah. I, I've been writing, I started writing my first grants even when I was in, um, before I, I started teaching college. But, you know, of course, with when I went to UMass, I had resources and help to, you know, hone my skills per se, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that can help you. Um, and now I think, I feel like I understand uh, well enough that I, most of the time I get good results. When when we began this discussion, Ruth Griggs warned that uh, that we were going to be a little bit gushy about Felipe Salas, and and I just want to say um, we talk about pl a pluralistic society. We talk about diversity and inclusion and equity, and we talk about how music is a way for people to express themselves in society. The kind of music you bring, the kind of music your department in UMass generates is some music that celebrates our differences in a way that it's really difficult to, to understate the importance of it. And for those of us who love it, we truly love it. It's an important part of our lives. Ruth, I know you speak for well, that. Well, we were, we were talking before the show, Felipe and I, about how you know UMass has always been this incredible institution for jazz. I mean, when you look at Max Roach, um, who we are celebrating at the Northampton Jazz Festival because he has his centennial this year, um, all the way through up to you know to Felipe, it has, it has been an institution that has not only you know, promoted jazz and had amazing jazz artists as professors, as performing artists, as composing artists, but also artists who care about civil rights, who are activists, who care about the immigrant experience. And that, that to me, is something to truly celebrate. Truly. Could you tell us again about what about the, the the CD and about what's going to happen at the Bombic Center on the seventeenth? So Felipe Salas's latest um, incredible composition is a, an album called "Home Is Here," which is by his Interconnections Ensemble. It is a very large multi instrumental band that will be playing at Bombic's on June 17th at 7 p.m. You just go on to bombix.live to get your tickets, and it will be a gorgeous, gorgeous experience for you. So don't miss that. 
And we, as we, as we uh, go out, we're going to hear a little bit more from Reinvention, which is the first piece on, on Felipe Salas' new album. And thank you, Ruth Griggs, for bringing Felipe. mornings on WHMP means Polka, Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the Polka classics and the latest Polka hits. There are Polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhoun, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-Northampton. WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's